Welcome to the Defrag Podcast, the show which aims to cater for every geek everywhere. And this is episode three, which I might add has been delayed a little bit, but it's great to be back on deck. Uh, joining me, as per usual, is the editor over at gaming site loadscreen.com.au. Please check it out. The team there do a fantastic job at buffering up the latest news in gaming. It's Tom Heath. How's it going, Tom? Hey, pretty good, and thank you for that praise. You're very oh, kind. No, no, that's fine. We, um, like you, very, very lucky to have you on the show. So more than happy to. Um, and of course, it's all true. It's great, great, um, great news and great site, great teams. So we have Kyle Evans, who hosts the most, and I mean the most comprehensive guide to every geeky event right across Australia and New Zealand. That is cannedgeek.com. Please check it out if you get a chance. How are you, Kyle? Yeah, pretty good yourselves. Yeah, good, thank you. Good, good. Also joining us is our resident comic book expert, uh, the only man with a bigger sense of compassion than Steve Rogers himself. Of course, I'm talking about the co-founder of Canberra's very own Impact Comics. It's Mel Briggs. Hey there, Mel. How's it going? Hello. That's um, quite the rap. It is, yes. I well deserved though i feel <laughs> um we also have our uh guest panel member for the month um affectionately known to many as that comic book guy uh he's the host of the halftone effect podcast welcome kira nunn how are you mate thank you thank you very much i'm um, great and it's great to be here i feel honored to be a uh, part of the show oh no you're welcome um, we'll certainly talk about your show a little later. Um, mm -hmm. But on that note, we'll get stuck in and we'll chat gaming with Tom first, I think. Yeah, well, we've been treated to some really great video game releases over the past few weeks. Uh, Tom, I'll let you field this one. What have sort of been the biggest titles on your radar recently? On my radar, personally, it was um, the latest of uh, PlayStation's big juggernauts, uh, Uncharted 4. Mm. Um, I've been a huge personal Uncharted fan for many years since it started, so I was particularly pumped for this one. But um, from what I've seen just in internet coverage and sales and all that sort of stuff, Uncharted 4 has just been smashing it out of the water. Mm. Um, but it wasn't the the only sort of big thing in the past couple of weeks, as you mentioned. Uh, we just had, um, oh, geez, was it three days ago now? We just had the new Doom mm. uh, show up. Uh, what's that, the first one in, what, 12 years? <laughs> 2004 was the last one. So this has been a pretty, pretty big drop. But also the final, well, allegedly, quote, unquote, uh, final, uh, according to the game director himself, the final Dark Souls mm. game came out as well, Dark Souls 3, which uh, I believe actually had the biggest opening of the entire franchise uh, for the Souls games, including Bloodborne. So that was also a huge, huge drop back in April. Wow. Yeah, and uh, actually they've all kind of had their own little points of controversy. Uncharted 4, not so much. Uh, it, it really only had a street date break about two weeks before its launch, which was a little bit awkward. I imagine Sony wasn't too happy about that. Mm. But um, I guess the big one, I'd like, I don't know if you guys have ever played the Dark Souls games yourselves. Do I have any other Souls fans <laughs> with me? Look, I'll be honest, uh, I haven't. Um, I really want to get stuck in them. It's one of, you know how you have those lists, that sort of mental list of titles, and you think, I'm totally going to play that one, I have the time. And I probably put Dark Souls on that list maybe a couple of years ago. I <laughs> still haven't got around to it. I don't know if uh, anybody else has had a chance to tuck into those, though. No, nah, not at all. No, not me. No, no. All right. Well, I guess the huge controversy surrounding it is um, you're probably aware of the, uh, the series' reputation for being ruthlessly difficult. Mm. Um, and every time there's a new Souls game uh, that appears, there's always a discussion about whether or not there should be an option to make the game easier. Because the way that the game works, there's no difficulty settings or anything like that. It plonks you in it. 
and you just and there's not even really much of a tutorial like they teach you the controls but not your your goals or strategies or any of that sort of stuff you kind of have to learn by doing and it's just spawned this huge meme that anyone who struggles with this game just has to get good mm-hmm. <laughs> as it were so there's always just a huge discussion around whether or not there should be an easier option because yeah the game is ridiculously hard i mean it's kind of like it's got the learning curve of a brick wall but that's sort of almost the point of it is what all the difficulty uh, the people who are pro the uh really really ruthless difficulty say is that the game uh is about rewarding players who are uh, what's the word i'm looking for who stick with it who uh you know learn their mistakes who get back up again when they've been beaten down and all that sort of stuff however that can mean that you're repeatedly doing the same section the same boss or something over and over and over which is where a lot of people get very frustrated when they just want to sort of absorb themselves in the lore and the story. So it was just a huge point of contention over the past month, particularly in our on our website, because my fellow editor, Charlie, um, he is one of the people who is uh, very much in uh, favour of the idea of there being an easier difficulty because he loved the aesthetic of Dark Souls but was just struggling with it and found he didn't have the time. Mm. Um, but it was kind of, I was a little worried when he published an editorial about this. I feel, uh, he's sort of turned our website off for a whole, whole, uh, subgroup of gamers who are all <laughs> Souls fans because they all immediately replied saying, nope, sacrilege. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, which has always been a bit interesting. Yeah, it's, and, and it's, I think it's a fascinating point too because there have been a lot of games I've certainly played and I have, sometimes it's a little annoying having that sort of, having the, the, the game guide you through just the first maybe 15, 20 minutes of play to, even if it's something simple like getting you used to the controls, I, I, sometimes it doesn't work very well or sometimes I find it's incredibly obvious and I think, you know, this is, this is a little bit boring. Um, so I, I really did like, um, and this is one of the reasons why I put it on that mental list I just mentioned, um, mm. that the Dark Souls sort of didn't hold your hand and it threw you in and it wasn't afraid to be one of those titles that says, yes, you're going to get thrown into the deep end here. Good luck. See how you go. So, yeah, I, I'm definitely, now that we're even talking about it, really want to get my hands on a copy and play it. So, But I also think there's a second side to that as well where, uh, like you said, it can also, if it goes too far, it can detract from the story or like you said, the aesthetics yeah. or whatever. So, yeah, it's an interesting um, it's an interesting point for sure. Mm, well, yeah, it's a series that's always been, it's been very different for everybody. I find there's always, there's a point where you click with it. And for someone that could be within the first hour or so, for someone else it could be six hours later. And, yeah, there are just some people who just don't have the patience or the time. Like, mm, I mean, mm. we're all adults now. We have lots of life things to get mm. to. Get to. <laughs> yeah. Um. I guess uh, back on Doom uh, coming out just a couple of, uh, to, yeah, Friday, actually. What's today? Sunday. Friday. Um. Yeah, there was a huge sort of issue around that game's pricing, right. which was just a little bit interesting. Uh, uh, the Specifically the PC pricing of the game, because um, the, P- the PC game is uh, locked to the Steam platform uh, um like if you even if you buy it at a retail store uh you will just have to activate the game on steam anyway yeah, and actually mm-hmm. download a fair chunk of it but anyone who uh pre-orders the game through steam obviously you're paying a us dollar price and the price for ages and ages and ages we're talking months before release so the pre-order value was uh 79.95 us dollars mm-hmm. which i think at the current exchange rate pushes over a hundred well over a hundred it's something like 110 it's something ridiculous right um, but interestingly enough, on launch day on Friday, suddenly the price dropped mm-hmm. uh, to fifty nine ninety nine US dollars, which is the same price that they charge in the states. 
only yeah. for it to go back up to seventy nine ninety five again twenty four hours later. <laughs> and no one quite understands why. And it's just opened up this huge can of worms uh, for the Australia tax, which we've all felt in some way or another. Either I imagine through maybe comics imports. I imagine it's quite a thing. Um, but mm. technology and games and films and really everything, it, it, it's bad to be in pop culture in Australia, really, and this has highlighted another aspect of that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's sus. <laughs> yeah, like really <laughs> sus. I, I'd like to hear like the ACCC getting involved in something like that. I don't know sort of where they would stand in that regard because, I mean, I guess it's it, it's interesting because people who pre-order on Steam, if, like you you pay the price that you that it was when you pre-ordered it. It's not like you put your name down and then your credit card gets charged mm, on release mm, day. It's charged at the time you do it. And all these people had spent 80 US dollars instead of 60 mm. and they weren't they weren't given any sort of uh, refund on that like they could refund their game fully and then rebuy it in that window if they chose to mm. but it's not a great yeah, experience though that, is it no yeah and, and if you and, didn't do it within that 24 hours you missed your opportunity <laughs> yeah and what's also interesting about it is um, it's not it's not a tangible object it's not as though it's something that has to be shipped in a case across the exactly. ocean it's and you and yet the the price gap is still in effect. Um, yeah, it's an interesting subject. Um, it's just r- ridiculous, really. You should not have to pay. And a great example of that as well. Um, it depends on where you're purchasing some items from. And this is obviously a whole other discussion. But something I find um, I do laugh a little bit at it is you you attempt to buy uh, titles from the the vendor itself. For example, if I browse to um, the Xbox Live Store, and I attempt to purchase a game. I know I'm going to be paying a lot more for it than what I would if I walked into a local, you know, my local Big W or Target. It's just silly. I don't know how they expect people to head to those stores if they don't price it competitively. I don't understand, but it's you know, not really my call, obviously, <laughs> to make. So, mm-hmm. yeah, as I said, that's a whole other discussion. But some, it's not just games though that seem to have fallen into that hot topic category at the moment because I believe we're starting to see additional details regarding that supposed upcoming revision to the PlayStation 4. What's the latest on that? Ah, yes. Um, these rumours have been building and building and building over the past couple of weeks um, where the, some develop- how it started originally was um, another outlet, uh, Kotaku, I believe, um, published some information where sources within game development companies we're talking about how they their upcoming games were being designed to fit two different models of PlayStation 4, one of them being the current one on the market, but another one being a PlayStation 4 that had slightly higher specs and that the idea of these specs were to maybe produce uh, 4K resolution game content rather than uh, traditionally we've been operating in around 1080p. Those those sort of rumours were very sparse, but uh, over the past couple of weeks, more outlets have reported different sources coming to them with similar information, even going to the point where one of them released a document which detailed a, a PlayStation codenamed Neo, which I thought was kind of an odd choice until I realised that the PlayStation virtual reality headset was codenamed Morpheus. <laughs> And I went, ah, oh, there's like a Matrix sort of yeah, little yeah, cool. uh, sync up there, maybe. I don't know if that's a huge coincidence or if that's someone trolling, just picking a new name. But, um, yeah, and this PlayStation Neo detailed in this document talked about 
4K games, or at least games running in an upscaled version of 4K uh, with higher frame rates, essentially running in higher quality, uh, but the exact same game would also operate on the older PlayStation 4, just in a, uh, uh, I guess, in a poorer quality, like not as stable a frame rate. Um, so every game from then on would have to ship with two different modes of play, which would be original or Neo compatible. Mm. And it's just opened up this huge, interesting discussion around mid-generation upgrades uh, for gaming consoles, which is something we haven't really seen to this extent. I mean, the sort of the market where we do see this is phones. Yeah, um, yeah like having a, an iPhone every year and they're always the six. 6s presumably the 7 will be the next but um it's just really split the the gaming community from what i've seen on uh some people thinking oh great yeah i'll buy a new ps4 because holy cow the frame rates in some of these games are atrocious whilst others saying wait i've only had this for two and a half years you mean it's superseded already Mm. um and yeah i'd be interested to hear what you uh the you guys think about this because i don't know i'm sort of more leaning into the the camp of i'm not a fan of it at all because i guess what i'm afraid of is that as soon as there's this newer console out on the market and as it gets adopted more when uh, game designers are uh, designing their games um will be focusing more on ideas that the newer system will be able to run that maybe the older one can't or just barely can Mm. so we saw this when the playstation 3 and 4 were on the market together effectively i mean i know that's a seven year generation gap but you'd have games that released on both so a game came out for ps4 it looks amazing has uh, you know the brand spanking new graphics tech and uh, scope and all that sort of stuff and yes, you can get it for PlayStation 3, but it's a frame-dropping, murky mess. Mm. But hey, it runs. Mm. And that's what I'd be afraid of the industry heading towards. But I don't know. We do see this with PCs. For example, we see PCs getting upgraded constantly, and then some people have different experiences over others, depending when you bought your PC, and there's a huge sort of split in quality there. So I don't know if I'm panicking over nothing, but I'd be interested to hear what you guys think. Yeah, I, it would... I think it's a little different to to PCs in that um, they're sort of those devices are used for almost it sort of seems to be changing a little now, but almost used for one thing and that's playing video games. Um, so it would mm. upset a lot of. There's almost like a big chain that sort of moves, um, you know, because you've got retail outlets that supply them, you've got developers obviously that need to to write the games, and I think we're sort of in this cycle where seemingly the industry's used to that six or seven year generational gap. Um, yeah, so I, I think what what you were saying has a lot of merit where it would upset um, or force people to, to change their minds quickly about how, um, especially those that are in development, how their releases are sort of planned and, and deployed. So yeah, it'll be interesting. It's a it's a I think it's a big discussion to have. Yeah, you, you're certainly right with regard to the PC stuff. It seems to work okay. But yeah, when, when those when when and I think we spoke about this last step when vendors have to lock in so much time to design and manufacture and then distribute a console, that sort of is where things change a little. So that'll be interesting. Mm. And yeah, well, none of this has been confirmed by PlayStation yet. So while um, like, this could just all be a huge misdirection for a, for maybe a newer project or people are hearing rumblings of a PlayStation 5 that might be coming out sooner, but... Yeah, I don't know. Just it's the evidence seems to be mounting. Mm, uh, mm. So it'll be a very interesting uh, E3 in Tokyo game show. Well, something that jumped out at me uh, only this week, actually, 
uh, was news of Hyperloop One's successful full-scale test in Las Vegas to demonstrate the progress it's making towards bringing Hyperloop transportation into our everyday lives, which, of course, still years away, but it's very cool to say the least. Uh, did anybody actually see the test performed? Did anybody see the video that Hyperloop One released earlier in the week showing yes. the... Yeah. Pretty Several cool. times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for those of you are listening who aren't aware, Hyperloop is a concept developed by uh, the poster boy for entrepreneurs, Elon Musk. And it basically details how we can use uh, pressurized air to propel capsules. And these capsules might be carrying people or cargo, whatever, uh, and propel them along a sealed tube from one place to another very, very quickly. Um, obviously, that's a very high-level description. There's a lot of tech and physics at play here. When I say quickly, let, let me put that into perspective. Um, the test vehicle that, that Hyperloop One ran earlier this week, it managed to reach 181 kilometers per hour in 1.1 seconds. It was very fast. Yikes. Um, yeah, now that's actually a far cry from their proposed system, which Hyperloop One expects will travel at about 500 kilometers per hour, but it's still impressive that the, the proof of concept ran very successfully, no issues that quickly. Um, I mean, realistically, we won't be using Hyperloop as a method of transport in the next few years. But if we were, where do you all envision Hyperloop making the biggest impact right here in Australia? Ooh. In Australia? Mm. I, I honestly cannot see anyone with enough money to do it putting it down to build one of these things. I, let's, let's unless assume. we can convince Elon Musk to move here. <laughs> I don't, don't. Yeah. Blokes like Clive Palmer, we need to be convinced this is a good idea and yeah. you know <laughs> and he's random enough he might just randomly decide one day that it was a good idea mm. I think, but yeah. but i mean the government's just gotten behind developing the idea of an inland rail between melbourne and brisbane mm. um that'd be a really interesting argument to sort of run run hyperloop that way because what it would do is actually encourage more inland cities um, which could in itself be a whole other argument about housing stress and affordability and all these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, th- I think, and it would be tectonically, it would be safer once you're inside the Great Dividing Range, I think. Um, not not that they're super dangerous, really. It's a low-pressure tube with magnets in it. Like, there's not even any rails. It's crazy. Mm. Yeah, it is insane, and, and that's sort of what I was going to lead into. Um, and it doesn't even have to be Hyperloop, even just high-speed rail. Um, I, I would love the idea. Where I live, for example, um, high-speed rail would allow me to travel to Melbourne within an hour um, and then back. And I love the idea of transportation allowing you to move so quickly from the city to the country that it invites those people to work in the city when they live in the country and, and vice versa. It might open opportunities for large companies to... Um, buy less expensive land in the country to to open um, headquarters or offices and things like that. So I think it's a really cool idea. It'd be interesting to see how something like that develops over the next several years, at least. Well, as we made note of at the beginning of the show, our guest panel member for this month is Kieran Nunn, a.k.a. That Comic Book Guy. Uh, Kieran, I trust you're enjoying your time with us thus far? It's been great so far. Thank you. Yeah, cool, cool stuff. I want to talk about the halftone effect. Um, I'll admit I'm a regular listener and I love it. Um, We spoke a few days ago about this actually, but I'll raise it again. Uh, The enthusiasm and and the passion you put into each episode, it's wonderful and I'm happy 
to direct anybody who enjoys learning about comics to the podcast. Um, so having said that, what really sort of prompted you to start producing the show a couple of years ago? Um, well, previously I'd worked on another podcast called On Earth One, which was directly based around comic book news. So it was pretty much reporting on everything else that had been going on in mainstream Hollywood, around the world, comic books in general. And I felt there was the same format that everyone else was using. And I started to dig a little deeper into it and think, well, I, I used to enjoy um, DC Marvels and the stories were becoming very stale to me. And I started to dig around for independent comics. And I found a very vast world where there was so much more to give. And I just thought, this is this is the perfect um, way to talk to people, to get their knowledge on it. Because myself, I always wanted to write and illustrate comics. And I love drawing, I love illustrating. So I was like, okay, where can I go for you? And unfortunately, the podcast I was a part of ended up falling apart and we went our separate ways. That's where I was like, I came up with the idea of the half pen effect before we started recording on Earth One. And I was like, okay. Let's see where we can go with this. And I started just putting my feelers out, joining groups on Facebook with um, independent comic creators. And I got a, it was a very slow process at the start and people were starting to come back to me. Um, they were happy to send me their work for free, which I didn't expect that, um, mm. just to get on the show and talk about their work. So um, I was very flattered to begin with because it's just like, oh, you know, they're giving me their work, their hard-earned time and money to um, come on the show and talk about what they've done. And that in itself was an insight into another world, and I had no idea the uh, the effort and the time that they put into it. So I think from there it was just a building of my my way of being able to talk to people and networking, which is I think is the most important part of the um, the independent comics world, which is yeah networking. Yeah, great. And I, I'm going to say it again. I love the fact that you mentioned um, you sort of you understand exactly, and I certainly don't. I won't pretend to, but I'm sure Mel certainly does, and perhaps Tom does. Um, that just the amount of work that goes into these things and the struggle and I'll ask you this in a question in a moment sort of the the, the trials and, and how hard it is to get noticed um, and get your ideas published and things yep. like that so you mentioned that uh, the halftone effect does feature a lot of independent comic artists as guests mm -hmm. and look I'm, I'm mm -hmm. sure they've all had their own unique journeys and so what are some of the things you sort of learnt from speaking with them what are some of the things you found are common between independent artists and as I mentioned before what are some of those struggles that people are facing and what are the things you like to highlight after hearing about it, it's it's funny you say that because a lot of them recently I've had to talk to um, that, obviously the ones from America they are all screenwriters mm. a lot of them are screenwriters and they've worked on projects that some of us may have heard about some of us may not um, there's a couple that have worked on some alien scripts that never seen the light of day um, I've got one who I've become really good friends with and he's working on um, scripts for CW at the moment so mm. he's getting a, getting a trial for that uh, it's it's funny because yeah, it always comes back to screenwriting. Um, there are a few that have recently picked up work with the likes of Marvel. Um, one artist I know of has actually worked on the Daredevil season two promo art. Wow. Um, so that was that was pretty impressive to see mm. that um, happen. And I think as the as the podcast continues and the more connections I make, you can actually see them starting to progress. And in, I think the bigger bigger companies are starting to see their work and their effort. Uh, and they're looking at them going, okay, well, these, these are our next up-and-coming stars. Let's try and get them, get them in with us before someone else takes them. So it's a, a lot of it's just due to the hard work and wanting to do it. Uh, if you're looking for something like you want to be rich and famous, then you're in it for the wrong reasons. Uh, it's, I like to think of it as punk music. You're not, you're not doing it for money. 
you're doing it for the sheer enjoyment of music or comic books. So that's what it really comes down to at the end of the day and yeah. sacrifice, lots and lots of sacrifice. Mm. I think it's what that sort of that formula that's transferable regardless of what you're trying to achieve. If, like you said, those things, sacrifice, passion, uh, hard work, mm-hmm. totally agree with um, if you sort of start do it, you sort of take that utilitarian view and think, oh, I'm going to do this because I'm going to be so rich, it's going to be great then, yep. yeah, I think it definitely uh-huh. makes you a little short-sighted. So, If, you, if, you, if you've got the idea you're going out to be the next Jim Lee, then you're going to be very disappointed. Um, <laughs> even Jim Lee even Jim Lee uh, had a struggle for a long time to get where he was. And I, I love, I'll reference um, the Image documentary. Um, Jim Lee spoke about the effort he went to to try and get to Marvel, and he literally drew all day until his hands were swelling. Now, I just, I take that bit of information and I run with that because I think that's, you know, it's a testament to what he's accomplished, but it's also, he's had to work, work his ass off to get where he was, mm. nonetheless, and, you know, and look where he is now. So that's the way I see it. Um, it's, it's, it's hard work. Everything in life, you've got to work for it. doesn't come to you. Yeah, com- I completely agree. And, and yeah, obviously, as you've just clearly highlighted, um, working as a comic book artist is, is no different mm. at all. So. And speaking of of hard work and, and putting time and effort into something that you want to see grow, I'm sure you'll agree with me when I say that podcasting, it can be such an effective uh, and inexpensive way of delivering you know thoughts mm-hmm. and ideas to others. And that's why we're, I think we're starting to see a lot more people uh, have a swing at it. Um, and it's certainly one of the reasons I decided to get stuck in. Um, but you obviously you've been producing the halftone effect for a lot longer than I've been recording uh, the Defrag podcast. And so in light of that, I'm keen to hear what your sort of what advice you'd offer somebody were they listening uh, who was considering starting their own podcast and what are the, some of some of the biggest lessons I suppose that you've learned since launching the halftone effect? Yeah, it's it's the same again. I think it, everything transfers over to comedy. You've got to have the um, dedication to want to do it every week or every week. Um, second week, wherever it may be, you guys obviously do yours month uh, every month. Mm. So that's that in itself. I think is a, a great. You've gone off the straight off the bat and said, okay, we're going to do this once a month. Uh, it gives you time to edit because there's such a process in editing, um, all the other things that go along with it, social marketing, everything. So you've got to take all that kind of stuff into consideration when you start a podcast. Um, I've been. I did some research before I started doing this. I had a lot of help from a friend who uh, used to be on another podcast called The Trusty Crowbar, and those guys, um, they developed their podcast into a YouTube channel, and they were looking for ways to create it so that it wasn't going to cost them because obviously you have to pay for subscriptions to your likes of SoundCloud, Podbean. Um, So you need ways of financing that. So they were looking at different ways, and they were actually getting in touch with people like PlayStation and Xbox and any other third-party developers who made consoles, controllers, um, things were really popular towards the end of their series was uh, steering wheels. They were getting steering wheels and trying those out. And I think that's another thing. You've got to be able to evolve the series as well, um, trying to find new ways to capture people in drawing them into what you're doing, more or less. So a lot of things I see fall flat on their face are competitions. Uh, I've done a few in my time. They don't seem to really pick up. People don't really care about that. They much rather listen to something that's got a quality content. Very important part of it is great sound. Um, I can't stress that enough to anyone that asked me about it. I had had to learn a lot of things about sound and uh, editing in the process of doing these podcasts. And yeah, I think that's a major key. If you can hear them properly, then you're not going to have a problem. There's a few out there that I have listened to. I'm not going to name names, but the audio quality is horrendous and it makes it a very difficult process to listen to them sometimes. Mm, for sure. Um, on a more somber note, I wanted to speak to you about 
the passing, I was, I was hoping you could maybe detail this a, a little more. You're a very big mm -hmm. inspiration of yours, very, very recently passed, very young at the age of 53. I was hoping you could tell us a little about Darwin Cook and sort of, and for those listening who aren't familiar with Darwin Cook, I encourage you to study his works. He was a highly decorated artist. Um, but Kieran, I'm given to understand, as I said, you are, you are a big fan of his. And, and how did his work sort of inspire and influence you as an artist? What did he mean to you? Well, I think it's sad to see someone go at a young age. 53 is a young age, uh, and cancer is uh, it's a horrible disease that affects it affects everyone in some way or another. Um, he had an impact on me and a comic book community, I feel. Mal, I'm sure you feel the same as well. Um, yeah. It's just, it was a shock. It was yesterday it was announced, and today the news came out. I, were, I woke up pretty late today, and I read the news on my social media feed, and, yeah, it kind of rocked me. I was like, this guy has been influencing me since uh, the early 90s, which was he was involved with Batman Beyond, uh, the animated series, for anyone who is familiar with that series, and I, I, I love Batman. I'm an avid Batman fan, and that just threw me away. I was like, wow, this is this is amazing. Um, and I, from there, I actually grew into his style of uh, illustrations and his comic books, um, his work on DC, The New Frontier, it blew oh. me away. <laughs> yeah, Just that's, yeah. unbelievable. And I think that's what everyone always goes back to, more so now with, the, uh, I think it was 2008, they released the film, so animated film, yeah. and that, was, that caught a lot of attention as well. So I think people went back and picked up the comic book from that stage. Uh, he's worked on so much stuff, The Spirits, which is uh, Will Eisner series, uh, before Watchmen, which was the prequel to The Watchmen, Alan Moore. Batman Ego, he's done a few Cat, Catwoman stories and uh, he's illustrated a few for um, Ed Brubaker. But his work is countless to DC Comics especially. So, And he did it recently, I think it was last year. Mel, you might be able to refresh my memory. I think it was last year he did a uh, selection of various covers. He did. He did a whole series mm. of covers that had this beautiful, pulpy, retro feel that he's mm -hmm. known for, the the lovely thick brushwork. What was really great about his stuff was even when he was dealing with dark material, he made comics feel fun. It's sort of yep. like, you know, he he was the artist from those mythical good old days that never really yeah. existed. He he was that guy. And he was here. These were our good old days. You just had to find the book whatever the book he was on. And yeah. He, he captured that in all of those covers and like, and he really just did whatever he needed to do. Sometimes he was doing the cover sideways just to really capture that, that character the right way. It was great. And I think that for me personally, that we, we lived in a kind of a time where now we, everyone's so dark and brooding in their uh, illustrations for the big two. I think it's called the big two. This very similar nods to Jim Lee's work and everyone's very inspired by him. But I think Darwin Cook really stood apart from the rest. And it was a it, it really felt like a golden age style illustrations that he drew and it just it, it impacted me a lot. I actually have a current Batman sleeve of tattoos happening at the moment and I have always wanted to get Catwoman, his Catwoman he's done yeah. on me now. So that's definitely gonna go ahead now. Just a nod to him and a thank you for the you know, the amount of great work he's done throughout his career. And that's the great thing about comics. It's about also about what you leave behind as well, and he's he's left a, he's left a legacy behind, mm. and hopefully future generation of uh, comic book artists to come through now. It sucks. It really sucks. Yeah, it's it's obvious that um, when somebody that has obviously you mentioned explained it so well, somebody had such a big impact 
on you as an individual does leave. I guess one of the best things about the fact that he was an artist is that you've got all of those things to refer to and remember him by. You've got those yep. books, you've got the images. Like you said, you'll, you'll have the, the tattoos. Um, in a way, he's almost um, not gone. He'll almost, like you said, leave a legacy behind, and that's that's really great, so it's fantastic. Um, let me shift things back onto a slightly more positive note. Yes. As, as I mentioned, you are an artist, and you're actually about to launch your very own comic, um, and that's fantastic news. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. What, what can you tell us about it? So this has been, this is spur of the moment, I will admit. I've been working on another comic book um, at the moment called Planetary Go. Uh, it's, I won't give too much away about that because it's still in a work in progress, but it has a variety of characters, obviously based in space. It's going to be fun. It's a nod back to the Looney Tunes, very much so, mm. just without the, the racial impact that the early Looney Tunes cartoons had. Um, <laughs> But this this comic I have actually spawned over the last month is called uh, The Talking Bread. I was a baker for 10 years, and I experienced and witnessed some very interesting events. So I felt that what better way to uh, interpret those events is into a comic book. So originally the concept came across from um, Peanut Series. I want to do comic strips. So the idea behind it is every week I'll do a comic strip on Patreon, Mm. uh, and you can subscribe to that. It's going to be a very small amount. And each week you'll get a comic strip, so it'll be five to six panels tops. And it'll just pretty much be a comedy gag for most of it. But it's just, it's also giving me a bit of a um, headway into where I can go from here. Uh, just trying to s- test the water, see how people react to it, see how they react to my illustrations. It is it is a big step to take out your own comic and see how people react to it. And hopefully it is successful. And then you never know what happens in the future. I might turn it into a proper series, might be a, uh, might picked up by someone. You never know what happens. So it's just more or less testing the water at the moment, see how it all goes. But that will be coming out in possibly the next week if I can get my tail out of between my legs and get moving on it. But, yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's going to be fun. And I've, it's for a lot of late nights, a lot of late nights. I can say that much. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And you've got a wonderful attitude about it. And I, yeah, certainly can't wait to, to take a look at it. Hopefully at some stage we can we can get you back on the show to talk about it in a little more detail. So, Absolutely, yeah. Well, this episode of the Defrag Podcast is actually pretty special because we've been graced with the presence of two comic buffs, not just one, two. Ah. Um, the first being our guest panel member, obviously, Kieran, and the second is our resident guru, Mal Briggs. Uh, Mal, again, we've seen another big Marvel flick smash the box office over the past few weeks. Um, of course, I'm talking about Captain America's Civil War. Um, you've seen the film. I was hoping you could provide us with a brief summary of your thoughts about it. So, basically, it's Batman v Superman if you replace all the bad bits with good bits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've got to say, I think I'm... It's it's sort of like when you really try to boil the whole thing down and you take out characters' names and stuff, the description of the like one-sentence plot of both of these films is so similar, it's crazy. Mm. For them to be such a different experience in the film is... Oh, it, it's a, it's... It's amazing. I have problems with it from a storytelling point of view and as a fan of the character point of view. But honestly, those problems, the second I tried to think about them, I was all like, oh, shit, forget about that. What the hell is this? Like, look at this. (laughs) Like, the film just was wall-to-wall fun madness. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just... 
I'm super excited. I came out of it buzzing. Uh, Kieran, I thought this might be a good opportunity for you to chime in here as well. Um, have, you, have you seen the film? I'm guessing you have. Um, did you have any similar or perhaps even different thoughts to Mel? What was your viewing experience like? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there was there was a few uh, things that it, it bugged me, but in overall, it was, it was a fantastic film. Uh, you know, I, actually today before we started recording, I was going through all the Marvel films, and I can't actually fault any of the films. Yes, they have their they have their problems, but they're all still enjoyable films. Uh, you know, you can be nitty picky, you can be you can give them the fanboy treatment, but at the end of the day, they're a popcorn flick. You can sit down, switch off, and enjoy them, and that's probably more more of the point than anything. Especially as comic book readers, you've got a you've got another way to absorb all that rich history. And I think that's the best part of it. We get to do it through film and TV, for that matter, as well. Mm. I, I think I think one of the best things about this film is is it uh, if you look at the Captain America films as a trilogy, and they avoided the the whole numbering thing and all of that stuff that Iron Man mm. had going on. So, and yeah. this one, everyone was spending the whole time sort of going, "It's really an Avengers film," but it's. If you look at it as the third film in a Captain America trilogy, that trilogy stands out as one of the best superhero trilogies for years. Yeah. Like, like that first Captain America film was this great rollicking, fun World War Two sort of thing, and then the crazy spy adventure of, of Winter Soldier, and then this one's sort of the culmination of everything about all the grittiness of modern superheroes mm-hmm. more or less wearing down that gung-ho you know isn't war fun sort of character that came from world war ii finally everything's come home as a as an overarching three movie story arc i think it works really really well so yeah i'm i just was really happy i'd i'd be as much as i love the heck out of him playing captain america i'd be happy for him to retire now i think (laughs) yeah that's great tom did you have a chance to see the film did you have any thoughts regarding that too i did indeed get to see it yeah i i really enjoyed it and i'm i'm coming from a perspective of i'm aware of the civil war comics but i've never actually read them myself Mm. so i don't know how well it uh like uh, adapted that tale I know that I knew some of the differences, but um, yeah, I agree that it was. It's a lot of fun. After Batman versus Superman, I did feel like maybe, oh no, am I getting tired of these kind of grand superhero epics? But no, I'm really not. Uh, it was just Batman versus Superman was bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it just it worked really, really well, and it did still manage to fe- have that Captain America film feel like it was very specifically about him in the context of the other characters, which. I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I feel that's how a lot of these movies are going to have to go forward. They're going to have to feel like Avengers sequels in a way, because one of the things that bugged me about, say, Iron Man 3 or um, Thor The Dark World and all that sort of stuff is that these characters are aware of each other now and they don't call each other up to help. I mean, when Iron Man was dealing with the Mandarin and all that, he doesn't ring cap or hulk or any of those guys to come help him deal with it so i feel yeah the other characters are going to have to be all involved in the storyline and it worked really well in this instance yeah that's definitely one of the things from comics is that you know when you've got no dealing with actor contracts or anything people can come and go from stories as you need them with a an interconnected universe jumping over to another property the flash tv series I don't know whether anyone's been watching that, but yeah, yeah, really enjoyed it. Coming towards the end of this season, it got so big, like the villains taking over the city and stuff, that I was just sitting there looking at it, going, "Right, 
so how is it that the Green Arrow hasn't shown up by now? Like, it's yeah. sort of, they established that these guys are in the same universe. It's gotten to that point, mm. and it's gone on long enough and loud enough that the other guys have to show up. Like, like you've, you've created these rules within this universe. Mm. You have to be consistent with it. And, mm. yeah, that is one of those problems when you do a movie like, movies like these, unless you do some artificial thing like going, oh, everybody's off world fighting something else or whatever <laughs> um which is what what supergirl did a couple of times superman mm. is off world you've got to yeah you got to have a bit of a throwaway line or or like where falcon was just too embarrassed to let anyone else know that ant-man had beaten him up in ant-man you know <laughs> yeah, so I did, I did notice mm. that little hat tip that was great yeah look, look moving on um mal i'm given to understand you've got a little bit of news for us regarding a new dc comics imprint um what can you tell us about Young Animal? Uh, so Young Animal, um, it's it's due to be starting later in the year. Mm. This this was a big announcement. It sort of came on the heels of of them really finally gutting all of the original editors out of the Vertigo imprint, which is was the adults imprint that brought all of the European right the, the English writers over to America, all your Grant Morrison's and Warren Ellis's and Garth Ennis and Alan Moore and all those guys. Um, Vertigo was really the reason that the American market discovered them. Now, um, Karen Berger left years ago, and filling that gap in their publishing schedule, they have announced Gerard Way from My Chemical Romance mm. is going to be running a new imprint called Young Animal. So, looking through the titles they've announced, now, Gerard Way's no stranger to comics. Um, we might be forgiven for thinking he's just some pop star dabbling, but he was actually writing comics before the whole My Chemical Romance pop career took off. Am I allowed to call it pop or is it rock? I don't know. I'm too old. It's emo, if you followed him. Yeah. Emo. Like, okay. Yeah, we'll have to get him on the show to clarify. No. It's all good. Yeah. yeah. DC have just given him the reins to run this imprint. Now, looking through the titles, um, you've got uh, Doom Patrol, Shade the Changing Girl, uh, Cave Carson has a cybernetic eye, and Mother Panic have the titles they've announced so far. Now, these all appear to be new um, versions of existing DC properties that don't fit well with their superhero lines. So um, they're not doing anything quite as dramatic as what Vertigo were doing with bringing in people to create new things. But in the same way, that was where Neil Gaiman's Sandman, they basically brought him in and went, we own the Sandman, this crazy guy with a gas mask and a gun. The only thing we're in love with is the name, Go Nuts. And Neil Gaiman created what is now the Sandman, 10-volume story, and he's just recently revisited it with Sandman Overture. And it was credited with bringing new readers into comic shops for the last, what what has it been, 20 years, 25 years? Yeah. Um, people are still discovering the Sandman. So I have a feeling that DC are trying to bottle that same lightning for a whole new generation with these new spins on characters. It doesn't look like any of them have taken the great dramatic departure in the way that Gaiman went with the Sandman, but there's definitely some interesting spins, and it's not clear whether all of them are even going to acknowledge the previous versions of the properties. Like Shade the Changing Girl seems to be a reinterpretation of Shade the Changing Man, but the write-up for it doesn't seem to have any mention at all of any link to the old series so they're definitely trying to do something they're trying to take something they own because they're a great big property company warner brothers 
who are having trouble trying to get anyone to sign over new ideas to them and uh, trying to get people to reinvent ideas that they already own. So this could be really interesting. Uh, I don't know. Is this, Would that be the sort of thing that would get people to go into a comic shop and try it out for the first time? Is Are we, are we the wrong market for Gerard Way? Absolutely not. I, and I'm more excited about the fact that he's still going to be doing another Umbrella Academy, you said. So that's that's to yeah. me. Like I, when I first read that, I was like, oh, God, we're not getting another Academy for ages now because he's working for uh, working for DC it kind of cuts the throat really we don't get to see anything else that he creatively does because uh, the True Lives of Famous Killjoys was uh, another series that he did through Dark Horse and I I loved it it was a continuation of the soundtrack that they did uh, in 2010 and saying that as well I think that uh, it's great that he can kind of have his hands in both both jars really he can work for DC and he can also work for Dark Horse doing two different titles. I don't know how many of you guys, did you read his uh, one shot he did for Marvel for the Spider-Man multiverse? Yes, I did. No, I didn't. No, I didn't catch that one. No, I haven't, unfortunately. It's really good. I I wasn't a huge fan of the multiverse, but uh, that, obviously, Jared Way, I'm a fan of My Chemical Romance. I was a sucker. You know, I was like, shut up and take my money. Just take it. (laughs) And I I, I read it, and I I really enjoyed it. It was a different spin on Spider-Man, and I'm going to admit this, and I always do, Spider-Man's not my favourite character, but... Mm. I was in really, really thoroughly enjoyed the story. So give uh, give a guy that kind of uh, control. I think the good on him. I think he'll do great things for the uh, the company as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, D- DC's DC's superhero universe is relaunching this month, or sort of end of this month, start of start of June. You know, for the first time ever. I mean, in the last four and a half years, DC are relaunching every superhero title. So we've got rid of the new 52, which was four and a half years ago, relaunched dramatically in one month, 52 new number ones. We're going to launch 30 new titles this time. They're being a little bit more restrained with it, but the trick is they're coming out two times a month. So there's going to be about 60 titles basically every month now instead of 52. Well, not 60 titles, 30 titles, 60 books, you know, because everybody's double shipping. Long term, that's going to end up being interesting to see how they manage it. I know um, when Spider-Man was shipping two to three times a month over at Marvel, they just had the writer working months in advance with a rotating art team for each sort of story arc. Whereas this time, I'm not sure how far ahead some of these books are. Um, Wonder Woman, we know they're going to be alternating the story. They're going to have all the odd-numbered stories are going to be based in the current time, and even-numbered comics are going to be a flashback to a younger Wonder Woman. And so with the different artists doing each one, uh, uh, the Australian Nicola Scott is going to be doing the flashback ones, which is which has always been her big thing. She was always like, I really want to do Wonder Woman, but I'll only really do Wonder Woman if Greg Rucker's doing it. And then I watched them announce Greg Rucker, and next thing you know, her name came up, and I went, well, there you go. It's... It's happened. There's a there's a creator whose career had just skyrocketed. It feels like, you know, it's weird to see. I remember seeing her posting online that she was going to the US to, to show her pages of these drawings of Batgirl and stuff, and now all of a sudden she's the Wonder Woman artist. Well, one of the Wonder Woman artists. The other thing, the other big thing coming out of this probably is... Scott Snyder, who's be who was the writer on Batman for the last four and a half years and crafted probably one of the most solid runs of Batman comics where you can just pick it up and just read mm. issue after issue after issue after issue. Yeah, I'm um, about halfway through Snyder's run of Batman. I'm loving it. Oh man, he's just he's he's owned it. Like it's his now, you know. He's finishing up his run on Batman, uh, which 
has got a few people getting pretty upset, but he's going to now be taking over all star Batman, which he's going to have a, he is going to have a rotating cast of artists working with him. And it's basically his pick of artists and he's going to write stories to suit their art. So he's going to have a ball on that. That's going to be the the standout Batman book to keep an eye out for is All-Star Batman. And the last one I want to touch on is New Superman. This is this is a big deal. The Superman line, it looks like all the Superman books, Superman action comics, uh, Superwoman, Super Sons, Trinity... It appears there's going to be a whole bunch of different Superman characters. It's a bit of a throwback to the 90s after the death of Superman. And one of them is going to be this bloke called Keenan Kong, who's going to be from Shanghai. And he's going to be a Chinese Superman. And it's it's an interesting one. Um, apparently, they've signed a distribution deal with an ebook retailer in China. I've been t- speaking to a few friends who live in China and work in, in app development and stuff, and they still haven't heard boo about it over there officially and there was a bit of controversy because they've tweaked the guy's chinese name a couple of times um at one stage his name apparently sounded like saying something like eats chicken which was then a regional colloquialism for doing mm. something else to yourself um so yeah <laughs> there wow. those uh, those problems that you get from um from trying to write something in another language uh now it's the writer on this uh, wrote a book called American Born Chinese and he's been writing the Avatar The Last Airbender comics. He writes good stuff and he's quite aware, like he's of Chinese heritage in America. So he's quite aware of his own culture and is trying to pay homage to that in this book. It could, if it if it clicks, I mean, from a movie point of view, we all know there's, there's already been talk of action films and stuff tweaking things in movies to make them more palatable to the Chinese market. This could potentially be something going on in the comics to make it an appeal, the idea of a Superman who is Chinese, even if they can get a fraction sold somewhere in China, that's effectively probably going to double the market that they're already selling in America. So, yeah, that... that it's curious to watch, I think, just just from the to see whether it's a truly creator driven idea or whether it's possibly a cynical marketing ploy. Mm. But um, it's, he can fly and he's got an S on his chest, you know. Well, I find myself constantly looking for new ways to interact with people. Um, I love networking. And one of the best ways I've found to connect with others is by attending various conventions that take place throughout the calendar year. Uh, The trouble is that it's pretty difficult to find a centralised place to learn about those many events that exist and where they're being held and so on. Difficult, of course, unless you visit CanGeek.com. As usual, we have Kyle Evans from the CanGeek team to tell us what geeky gigs are upon us in the coming weeks. Kyle, I thought we'd start with Furry Down Under. Uh, it's certainly an interesting name for a con. What can you tell us about it? Sure. Well, this is this is a good time of year, actually, because May's been pretty quiet. Um, Furry Down Under kind of kicks off the, the end of May and June when we get really busy. So Furry Down Under um, is probably a little bit more niche than most of our other events because it's a, it's a furry convention. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is actually a really cool event. Um, because it's out on the Gold Coast, uh, it's a little bit more social. It's a little bit more of a party vibe. So you're going down to the beach or if you don't want to go that far, the hotel's got a swimming pool. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really like a, an extended barbecue house party. Um, where half the people are dressed up in costume animal suits, really. 
Sweet. Wow. So that's uh, so. What can one expect when they actually turn? So basically, the the uh, premise is you go there dressed in, as something furry and just go and have a ball. Is that sort of the long and short of it? Yeah. Or 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 the uh, standard jean. Uh, what was it the, the standard nerd attire of a nerdy t-shirt and uh, jeans? That course, also works yes. as well. That that will get you into pretty much every convention <laughs> yes. anywhere, and this is no exception. Totally. Totally. That's awesome. Well, moving down to Melbourne, you've also got an event that you want to chat about. Now, fill me in on Continuum. Sure. So if, if Ferry Down Under was your party weekend and beach bums and all that kind of stuff, Continuum is like the morning after where you, you catch up, you have some pancakes, and you sit about <laughs> sit around talking about really nerdy stuff over like maybe some, some tea and scones. I like it. Um, so it attracts a little bit more of a, an older... Um, like there's a wide range of, of, of ages who attend this convention. It's not just, you know, your 20, 30, 40 year olds. Mm. And there's also a lot of diversity in what they actually talk about. It pretty much covers every kind of fandom within this one event. It's very much panel focus. Uh, so it's really kind of almost academic, um, in that it'll, it'll talk about things like, you know, um, queer representation or different races in science fiction and fantasy. But there's also some more lighthearted stuff there. Like there's one panel that's dedicated to musicals, another dedicated to um, point-and-click adventure games. It's really just about probing these different parts of the nerd spectrum and and, and putting up up to a magnifying glass and just having a, a really fun chat about it. Yeah, nice. I like it. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, now, of course... Moving across the ditch, so to speak, uh, over in Wellington, we have Wellicon, which I believe is a board gaming convention. Uh, what can you yeah, about that? most definitely. I mean, board game conventions is definitely near and dear to my heart. If mm. I was in New Zealand, I would be here. It's the kind of thing you'd expect. So they've got a huge library. Um, you can go there, play with people you know, play with people you don't know. One of the interesting things that they do, that I've seen a couple of other ones, um, other other conventions start to do, is they have um, like board game developments, like you know, someone can can have a game that they've designed and you can play test it. So you can oh. play a game no one else has played before and you can actually talk to the designer and say, here's what's working and here's how I think your game is broken. Oh, that's such a great idea. So is this probably, well, arguably, this is, you might consider this the leading board game convention in New Zealand. Is that correct? Or are there perhaps others that might sort of be considered a flagship in comparison? Um, honestly, it's kind of hard to say because there's so many board game conventions everywhere. They all kind of for- follow the same format, which isn't a, a bad thing at all because all you really need is a group of cool people, a stack of good board games. Where is the biggest one? I don't know, but, you know, can't go wrong, really. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean what, what, what else do I say? Board games are awesome. Yeah, well, I yeah, totally agree. There's uh, only one thing you really need a board game convention. That's board games. So, yeah, totally agree. Well, speaking of board gaming conventions, uh, I believe there's something a few days after Wellicon actually that you want to chat about. What have you got for us? Yeah, so I'm stretching out the time scale a little bit. This is one in um, uh, early July, but I kind of want to bring up a little bit earlier because I'm a little bit biased. Um, it's called <laughs> Looking for Gamers, and I'm biased because a couple of my friends are actually helping run the event, and I'm actually going to be flying up to Sydney and running a whole bunch of board games there and a bunch of role-playing games there. Um, essentially, this event used to be uh, a toy and gaming expo, and they've, they've cut out the toys, they've cut out the children market, and they're just focusing on gamers now. So they're trying to develop it into a really hardcore, really fun, um, just really exciting game expo. No, very yeah. cool. Um, and the thing as well is that we've only just talked about a couple of events, but June is absolutely packed. So no matter where you are in the country, there's going to be something really cool happening near you. There's about, I haven't even counted them, there's about 15, maybe even close to 20 events happening in June. Fantastic. And of course, if you want to hear all about them and learn a little more, just head to camgeek.com. 
cangeek.com slash events. And uh, you'll see an entire list there. I'm looking at it right now, as a matter of fact. And yes, it certainly is comprehensive. And June is a huge week, a huge month, even huge month. Goodness. Uh, so yeah, yeah please check it out. That'll be great. Well, we've reached the end of episode three. Uh, it's been fun. And as usual, I'd like to thank everybody for joining me. Uh, and obviously, an extra special thank you uh, to Kieran Nunn. Kieran, I really appreciate that you've taken the time to hang out with us and have a chat. And I hope you've really enjoyed your time on the show. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, thank you again for having me on. I appreciate it a lot. Um, yeah, it's been great to talk to you all. No, it's, it's really no problem at all. And, and just while we wrap up, Kieran, where can everybody find you online? Um, so I am on every damn social media platform you can think of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We've uh, been vigorously working around the clock to try and get the YouTube page up and running. Uh, I've got a few people to help me with that. Uh, it's a very timely process. Mm. But we're on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can check the podcast out there. We're also uh, – I can't get words out. I said asshole then. Um, we are also <laughs> on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. So go and check us out. Um, share, share some love. Check out some of our uh, great episodes we've got. Uh, we've got some great guests on there. Check out their comics. Uh, I always say hashtag support indie comics. Mm. Uh, you can always find them at comic book stores. I'm sure you'll be able to find some of them at Impact Comics as well. Uh, but, yeah, like I said, check us out. Have, have a good time listening to it because we have a good time recording it. Fantastic. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Uh, look, the Deep Break Podcast will return in a month's time. Until then, take care and happy listening.